following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. Haven't met you yet. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the pastor here. Great to have you this morning, especially if you're visiting. We love you, love having you here. And uh, I want you to keep that passage open. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, there should be one at the end of your row if you'd like to pick it up. Uh, we tend to teach verse by verse through whole text of the Bible. Today I'm going to focus on a couple of passages within that one that we just read. And if you don't own a Bible, make sure you take that one home with you, okay? And keep it. It's our gift to you, as long as you read it, all right? So um, my brother was here a couple of weeks ago, sitting down the back there, had his family with him. And um, I was standing down the back for most of the service. And through the service, I noticed quite a few kind of sideways glances over at him. And then uh, after the service had finished, about half a dozen people came running up to me and said, is that your brother? I said, yeah. He looks a lot like you. Yeah. Why are we whispering? I don't know. It's true, he does look a lot like me. He takes after me, uh, even though he's my older brother. We're about the same size, about the same height, build, colour. And uh, I am about 30% cooler than him, though, so um, everyone will tell you that. And um, so over, over like the last, I don't know, especially the last 10 years, we've been mistaken for one another a lot. Down at the supermarket, we grew up in the same town, knew a lot of people in the town, so it would happen a lot that we're this kind of mistaken identity thing. We got used to being, having to stop people mid-conversation and tell them, it's not, it's not who you think it is. Um, but this, the most kind of awkward time that this happened, and the most weird, was on my wedding day. Right? Eight years ago, um, both my brothers, younger and older, were in my uh, wedding party, and um, we had the ceremony, and uh, it was me and my older brother, younger brother, and a mate standing in line. And then after the ceremony, we had a little afternoon tea in the church hall, and then after that, we all jumped in the car and went off and had photos and stuff. And, and as we jumped in the car after all of that, my brother said to me, oh, by the way, I had a few conversations for you today. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, oh, people came up to me and congratulated me on the wedding and asked me about how, you know, Bible college was going. And so I just went with it. And I was like, seriously? Like, these people know us. They were at a wedding, right? They know us well enough to be at our wedding. And I even had a different colour tie. Like, come on. How can, you, how, do, how can you mistake the groom at a wedding? I know it's mainly about Renee on that day, and people aren't really checking me out very much, but, but it's, our, it's my wedding. How, how can that happen? Mistaken identity, like, it seems a lot more weird, and it's certainly a lot more awkward, depending on the occasion. A wedding where Renee's centre of attention, and, I, and I'm standing next to her, that that's really awkward when people make that mistake like they did that day on a few occasions. Now, here's the thing about Jesus, right? He is the most influential, the most famous. The most well-known name who has ever lived in the history of the world. His life literally divides history, right? 
We divide our history around the world according to his birth. More works of literature, more pieces of music, more works of art have been commissioned about him than anyone else in in, in human history. Historians will say that he is unequivocally the most important person who's ever lived. Time magazine named him the man of the millennium, saying this is beyond dispute. He is the man who stands in the midst of history as its very centerpiece, as its linchpin, as its crux. And yet... Surely there is no one who has ever lived who has been more often and more regularly and more consistently a victim of mistaken identity. The most famous, the most important, the most... And yet, the most regularly mistaken for someone else. Let me give you an example. To King Herod, he was a political threat. To his own family, he was out of his mind. To his enemies, he was demon-possessed. To Judas, he was a way to get rich. To many people today, he's a way to get rich. To Pontius Pilate, he was an inconvenience. To Muslims, He's a great prophet. To Mormons, he's the product of divine sex. To Jehovah's Witnesses, he's an angel in disguise. To Gandhi, he was a good moral teacher. To materialists, he's a liar. To skeptics, he's a myth. To most Australians today, he is inconsequential. He's been called a pacifist, a communist, a fascist, a self-absorbed narcissist. And to his followers, for the last 2,000 years, he's been the risen Lord God, King and Christ. So who is Jesus? so often mistaken for someone else. So who is Jesus? Remember, we've been saying over and over again, John's design in this gospel is to tell us the answer to that question, is to to come into the inquiring mind and say, this is who Jesus is. And the great thing about the passage today is that he has asked the question directly in verse 53, who do you think you are? And his answer is the most profound answer he could possibly give. It is earth-shattering. So let's check it out together. We're going to start at the beginning of that passage in verse 31 and 32. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, right? Need to know that first of all. These are Jews who had said, yeah, I think, I think he might be legit. These aren't the Pharisees who he's just been brawling with. 
These are Jews who, who are on board. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And so he says, first of all, I am a liberator. I will set you free. I will liberate you. In verse 36, he says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's a liberator. He's here to set people free. What's their response to that? Verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? That's an interesting response. And it lets us know, it it kind of decodes that, that mysterious thing that Jesus just said about setting people free. It decodes it for us because you know, if you've been around for a while, that the Jews have been enslaved over and over and over again. They're like the most enslaved people have ever lived, right? In Egypt, they were enslaved. They were liberated. Then in Babylon, again, enslaved. Continually taken captive and enslaved. So what are they saying here? They can't meet, they can't mean sons of Abraham, we've never literally been enslaved. See, they get what Jesus is saying here. They know that he's not talking about literal enslavement, he's talking about spiritual enslavement. He's talking about setting them free spiritually. He's saying, you are spiritually enslaved, I will set you free from that. And they say, we're not enslaved, we've never been enslaved, we're Abraham's sons. You want to talk about spiritual enslavement, go to the pagans. They don't know what they're talking about. Go to the prostitutes. Go to the drunkards. Go to the tax collectors. We hear that you kind of like those guys. They need you. We don't. Sons of Abraham. Never enslaved. Spiritually free. And the point that Jesus makes in this gospel over and over again, and indeed in all four gospels, the the resounding, redounding cry of Jesus is that spiritual enslavement is both enslavement to morality and immorality. It's enslavement to religion and irreligion. Both of those people are enslaved and need to be freed. Those who are irreligious, who are licentious, who are sinning up a storm, and those who think they're so religious that they never need to be saved. Both are chained. Both need to be set free. And so Jesus says to these religious men, come to me, abide in my word, and you will be set free. You know, he gives heaps of examples of this. His parables are full of this kind of teaching. So in Luke, I think it's chapter 18, he talks about the parable of the tax collector and the righteous man. The tax collector, the most evil people they knew, the biggest sinners, and the righteous man, the religious man. And you remember the story? He says that the, t- the tax collector, uh, sorry, the uh, righteous man goes into the temple, stands up in front of everyone, prays loudly, thank you God that I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you that I'm righteous. You're welcome, you know, call on me anytime if you need advice, that kind of thing. And the righteous man beats his chest. He can hardly speak and just says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Jesus says, speaking to the religious guys here, 
I tell you, the tax collector goes home saved, not the righteous man. He gets justified, not the righteous man. Another one, parable of two sons. The lost son, the prodigal son. There's a picture of it on, as you come through the doors on your way in here. It's a great story, very meaningful to me in my own journey. And Jesus' story there is of two sons. The one, the prodigal, who goes and spends all his dad's money on prostitutes and alcohol and ends up feeding pigs and comes back to him groveling. And then the son that we don't talk about very much, the righteous son, the upstanding son, the religious son, the obedient son. And who gets left standing outside of the party at the end of the story, crossing his arms, all ticked off at the father? The religious one, the righteous one, the sinner The one who knows he's a sinner is inside with the Father rejoicing in his grace. The upright one is on the outside. And he gives us another little picture here. It's only a verse, but he talks about the son and the slave. And this is in verse 35. He contrasts the son and the slave. On the outside, they look very similar. They're both young men. They both live in the household that they, uh, you know, the son uh, lives in the house that he belongs to. The slave lives in the house that he works for. But the slave ends up eventually getting kicked out of the house. He doesn't have any inheritance there. The son lives there forever. The son inherits the family line. The son inherits everything his father has. And so Jesus says, if you're enslaved, whether religious or irreligious, you will end up with nothing. But for the one who trusts in me, Just as I am the Son of God, you too will be made sons of God, co-heirs with me. You will be adopted and brought into the house. You can be a slave of religion or a slave of irreligion. The outcome is the same. We all need Jesus. We all need to be set free. And he says, the Son will set you free indeed. Free indeed. Not just free in this life, you know, like... Sometimes the message of the gospel is reduced down to come to Jesus. He'll make you happier. He'll make you wealthier. He'll he'll give you psychological freedom. He'll make you less anxious. You know, he'll, 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 he'll help you be better parents. But Jesus says, you'll be free indeed. You won't just be free in this life. But in verse 53, he says, excuse me, 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Not just redemption for this day. I met a guy once who believed in the liberated Jesus and he was right into South American politics and he believed that Jesus came to set the captives free and set them free from political oppression. He didn't believe that Jesus was anything more than that. He was a freedom fighter. He was a Che Guevara kind of guy and that's what he came to do. But Jesus says, no, you miss the point if you reduce me down to that guy. I set you free in this life and the life to come. If you trust me, if you abide in my word, you'll never taste death. He says in chapter 14, we'll get to it next year, even though he die, yet will he live. The one who trusts in Jesus, even though we die in the body, yet we will never die. We will never taste death 
ultimately. So that's the kind of liberator he is. Now, they hear all of this, and their response is telling. Verse 53, and it's fair enough, they say, tell us, who are you? Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? He has this twofold response, which is astonishing. If you get it, it's astonishing. Verse 54 to 56. Jesus answered them, Who do you think you are? If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him, I know Him. If you were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Now Abraham, the father of the Jews, their original ancestor, the man that God pulled out of nothing to create the nation of Israel, our own forefather in the faith by virtue of being engrafted in to the people of God. Ancient man from ancient times. But like all Jews from him forward, they were all searching and yearning and eagerly looking for the day. It was called the day. They didn't have to call it Mother's Day because everyone knew what the day was, right? It's the day, and it was the day of the Lord. That's what they were looking for, the day of the Lord. It was the day when God would come, the day when God would come in the flesh. He would send his vice-regent, he would send his king into the world to make all things right, to restore the world to what God had originally envisioned. It was the end game that God called Abraham out of nothing to, 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 to be part of. It was the goal from beginning to end, the day of the Lord. And Jesus says, you know that day that Abraham rejoiced to see and everyone since has been rejoicing to see? That's my day. He rejoiced to see my day. Translation, I am Him. I am God in human flesh. This is the day. Abraham's seen it and he's rejoicing. It's a big claim for a carpenter's son from the country. This is my day. Abraham rejoices. They can't believe what they're hearing, and so they try to laugh it off. They're like, this guy's either completely insane or he's joking with us, and, you know, there's a lot of Jewish comedians, so maybe that's what he's doing. So verse 57 to 58, they say, "Um, you are not 50 years old. 
you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Come on. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. You know, whenever he says that, he's serious. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Let me read that again. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And their response is to explode. Like they just explode. Here's why. To understand what Jesus said and to know that it's the most profound, earth-shattering thing he could possibly have said, you need to know some context. And we need to go back to Exodus chapter 3. Okay, Exodus chapter 3. I think I've got this actually on the screen. I'll read to you. This is where... Moses comes before God. God is appearing to him in that burning bush. He's calling him to go to Egypt and set his people free from that slavery that we talked about. And Moses got raised in Egypt. He's, you know, he's still getting back into this Jewish thing. He's not exactly sure what's going on. He didn't know if he maybe ate something the night before that wasn't agreeing with him. And so he just needs some clarification. So verse 13 of chapter 3, he says... If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. This is the most profound Self-revelation of God in the Scriptures. The most profound self-revelation of God that there has ever been. I am. He's saying in this world of a multiplicity and plurality of gods, I am. That's it. I simply am. All of your other gods have myths surrounding them as to how they came about, nor usually coming out of the stuff of the earth that's already been created. I am. I simply am. I am uncreated. I am uncaused. I am sovereign. I am omnipotent. I am. That's who I am. I'm the causeless cause. I simply am. And so the Jews who first received these words knew that they were the the most profound things they'd ever received. And and as the uh, scribes were copying out um, copies of the Pentateuch, they would not even write the Hebrew for I I am. They wouldn't even write it. It was too sacred. And so they'd only write the consonants of the Hebrew, which spelt out Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, now transliteration, Yahweh. And so they did that because in the public worship, the the, the guys who were reading the text couldn't even utter the name I am. It was too holy, too precious, too sacred, too profound. And here Jesus not only utters the name, but owns the name. Do you hear that? I'm not getting anything from you guys. I hope it's because you're friggin' stunned, all right? He just said, before Abraham was, 
I am. You say, that's not even the right tense. Exactly. He's not trying to be grammatically correct. He's being theologically correct. Before Abraham was, I am. I didn't just begin before Abraham. I didn't begin. I am uncreated. I am uncaused. I am. Full stop. Which is exactly why in the next verse they pick up stones. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones? Because stoning was the lawful punishment for what? Blasphemy. They didn't just jump in and start beating him. They didn't take him and throw him off the temple, which would have been you know, more spectacular. It would have got in the news. They picked up stones because they were law-abiding religious men. Stone him. He is blaspheming. He says he's God. Now, some of you have taken a few classes in Religion 101 or Philosophy 101 or whatever it is, and they've said to you, oh, don't worry about Jesus. You know, here's the thing. Jesus never claimed to be God. Maybe you've got the JWs coming to the house, the Mormons coming to the house. Jesus never really said he was God. Take them here. Jesus says, I am. And if you have the eyes to see it, it is the most profound thing he could have said. Why didn't he just say, I am God? Because we could easily twist that to mean whatever we want it to mean. Just as the JWs do, the Jehovah's Witnesses do with their New World Translation. They'll go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Best translation, simple Greek. And they say, no, now it says, he was a God. So, just a God, guys. Created. He's really an angel, all right? You didn't see that? No. The Word was God. Jesus says, I am. So that you cannot twist his words. And we do this all the time. Eastern religions are great at this. God is in all of us. God is the sparkle in our eye. God is the, you know, the, the joy that we experience in life. God is, you know, whatever, a great orgasm. Excuse me. No, Jesus says, this is unequivocal. You can't mess these words up. The most sacred words there are, I am. That's me. I am the I am. And these guys get it. They pick up stones. Now, I just want to show you the progression of where they've come from and where they end up, all right? They started out in verse 31. They're they're people who believe in him. They're Jews who believe in him. They've been around. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his miracles. And up to this point, they're, they're with him, all right? They're thinking about signing up to the Jesus discipleship team, all right, and they're going to get on board that, 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 that bandwagon, and, and this is what happens, all right? Verse 31, they're believers in Jesus. Verse 33, they say, hang on a second, we're not slaves, we're Abraham's children. They get a little bit religiously indignant, just like all religious people do. Verse 39, they say, we're spiritually legitimate. God is our father, not only Abraham, but God has chosen us. We're legit. Verse 41, We're God's sons. We're not bastards. We're God's sons. We're not going to come around through 
spiritual sexual immorality? God's sons. Verse 48. We hate you and you're possessed by a demon. That was a big jump. All right? You're a Samaritan. That's the most hated people in the world to the Jews. And you're possessed. We hate you and you've got a demon. Maybe you are the devil. Verse 53. Who do you think you are? Verse 57, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. Verse 59, we're going to execute you. Now. That escalated quickly. Now what does that mean? That, that what we just saw there, the, the, the progression of how they felt about Jesus from beginning to end. What, what does that tell you? It tells you that they got it. It tells you that they understood. That's what Jesus wanted. Jesus, you've got to hear this, Jesus always, always, always wants to push us off the fence when it comes to who he is. On every page, he is pushing you to get off that fence. Either way. Crown me or kill me. That's what Jesus says to everyone in this room this morning. Crown me or kill me. But let's, let's get it done. Let's sit on the fence. See Jesus, the risen Jesus in Revelation, saying he's going to spew one of the churches out of his mouth because they were lukewarm. That's his biggest criticism of them. Lukewarmness. Be hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be modern Australia. Do you guys have conversations with people around, neighbours, co-workers? You should. But you should be prepared for the response of, ah, uh, yeah, ah, uh, mm, don't know. Right? The, the classic agnostic response, we, can't, we don't really know. I, I can't be bothered investing time and effort and thinking and, and actually reading to, to find out more, so... Each to their own. And Jesus says, no, no, anything but that. Crown me or kill me. These guys got it. These guys had the right response insofar as they hated what they heard, but they understood what they heard. Now, Everyone look right at me. This is really important. If your experience of religion, and some of you grew up in church, some haven't, but if your experience of religion, of Christianity, is one of indifferent, nonchalant, laissez-faire, lukewarm, ambivalent religion, then you do not know what Jesus was talking about. You have not understood what Jesus is saying. If your experience of Christianity to this point is restrictive, is dry, is discouraging, then you haven't understood Jesus. He just said, I will set you free. Is that your experience of Christianity? Set free, like liberated spiritually, to become more loving, more embracing, more self-sacrificial, more joyful, or is it dour and depressed and angry? nitpickers, mm, hating sinners. 
then you don't know what Jesus was talking about. I will set you free and you'll be free indeed. God, help us if anyone leaves this morning feeling lukewarm about Jesus. Please, please, if the only alternative is to hit me in the face and spit on Jesus and try and burn down the church, do that. Do that. That's what Jesus wants. More than... Nine out of ten of the responses I get from people when I talk to them in our context today is mm, indifference. See the footy on, on Friday? Oh my goodness! Jesus says he's the living God, the master of the universe. Created all things, sustains all things and promises you eternal life so that in a zillion years you will be free indeed in unmitigated joy. And, and, and listen, hey, it's easy to laugh at those guys. What about us? All of those things true as well. Yeah, I'll, he's more of my personal assistant, you know. I'm having trouble. Right, yes, because it's scary. It is scary. scary. But Jesus doesn't want to be your PA. He wants to take you to the stars. He wants to take you to the stars. He wants you to experience profound, unending joy. To do that, you've just got to throw yourself in, in a little bit. Erin's going to throw herself in. And part of what she's saying in that is, yeah, I'm all in. My old self has died, was buried, and I've been raised again. New life, new priorities. God is the center. And then the rest of her life is going to be coming back to that. Before Abraham was, I am. If you take the time, and I encourage you to do this, we've been encouraging you to read through the book of John. I don't think you'll ever hear a lukewarm response from someone in the book of John who meets Jesus, who hears what he has to say. Jesus is absolutely divisive. He's the most divisive figure in human history. In church, we're always trying to be as inclusive as possible. And Jesus, the one we worship, is absolutely divisive. Now, are we supposed to welcome all people? Yes. Are we supposed to love all people? Yes. But if there's no point of division, there's no point of contention, if there's no point of crisis, then we're not preaching the gospel. If you're not sitting here this morning either loving what you're hearing or freaking hating it, then I'm not doing it right. You see this um, 
Jesus on the cross, right? Easter's just been gone, Good Friday. You see Jesus on the cross. Who's either side of him? Two thieves. Similar in every way, as far as we know. One of them hates him, spits on him, curses him. The other one says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Rejection, reception. That's always the way with Jesus. So this morning, for God's sake, if you've been sitting on the fence, if you've been ambivalent, love, hate, undecided, then determine at least to take a step forward. We exist at this church to help people step forward from the first step and then ongoing for the rest of our days, as long as God gives us. That's what we're about. Growing in maturity, growing in Christ-likeness, growing, growing, growing as we walk together. So, what do you say to Gandhi if you meet him one day or one of his followers? And they try and tell you Jesus is just a good moral teacher. We went over this over the last couple of weeks. You tell him, you're wrong, buddy. I mean, respect, but wrong. You're wrong. I can't help but read John chapter 8 and not think of C.S. Lewis's famous, perhaps most famous paragraph in Mere Christianity. And uh, I'm sure that he just read this when he wrote that. We've got it on the screen, I think, so... This is what he says, and this is profound and very important. We'll finish here. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He does not intend to this morning. Love him or hate him. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we're in trouble now because we have no excuses for resigning Jesus to the 
inconsequential box. We have no excuses now. He simply won't allow us to make him what we want him to be. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. Hippie Jesus. I am who I am. I am the I am. And so, Lord, this morning Jesus stands before us, either as an object of our hatred or an object of our love. And if an object of our love, then an object of our infinite, unquenchable love. And if we love him, we'll follow him. Jesus said, you're truly my disciples. If you love one another, you are truly my disciples. If you keep my commandments. If anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross daily. Let him die to himself. Father, I stand here as the the chief among sinners. The one in the room who consistently and daily chases after the bread that perishes, as Jesus said, instead of feasting on the bread of life. I chase after the things of this earth. I chase after my own ego, my own renown, my own kingdom. So I just stand here and confess to these people and to you that I'm a sinner in need of a saviour. And I pray that you would make me and everyone in this room who loves you reorientate their lives around Jesus Christ crucified and risen, the great I am. God, this doesn't happen on an individual basis. This happens when a community gathers together, has a vision for seeing people do this and works together and strives together and puts in hard, long hours encouraging one another and convicting one another and confessing to one another and loving one another. That's, that's how this happens. So give us that vision as a church. Whether we're a church of five people or 500, give us that vision. Help us to be so zealous for one another's Christ-likeness that everything else would become peripheral in comparison. Lord, please come now and minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Convict us of sin where it's there and restore us to sonship as members of your family and your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.